I guess this would be the appropriate time to tell a story. One time, I was coming up to preach, and my notes were being held by my child. And I said, it's time for me to go preach. I need my notes. And he said, no, you don't. The Bible tells you what to say. (laughs) And I thought, yes, yes, he's learning young. That is great. But uh, you need the Bible, so I've got it now. As we start, I want to think about, I was thinking this week about watches, wristwatches. They have really a long history. I didn't realize it was quite this long. Clocks have been around for a long time. Wristwatches have been around since the 1500s. They've been around in different shapes, styles, sizes, but they have uh, really had similar mechanical working since the 1500s. And it's kind of interesting to, to think about how that history goes way back and how long that people have been able to have this kind of technology. And really the watch has been the same until the 1960s when this invention of the quartz watch came about, which I learned about this week as well. It sounds kind of uh, new age and hippy-dippy almost to say that quartz helps you keep time. Crystals help you keep time. But if you put an electric current through the quartz crystals, it vibrates at a certain speed and they get the seconds off of that. And so most digital watches today use quartz crystals in them. And so even, well, today now there's even computers you can wear on your watch, on your wrist. The little Apple watch, is a, it's not really a watch, it's a computer, right? But there are a lot of things that haven't changed in mechanical watches. Mechanical watches are still really the pinnacle. They're the high end, they're collectible, they're, they're the ones you spend thousands of dollars on because it's, it's something that will hold its value because it's such a, not really, it's really more than a tool, it's, it's a work of art as well when you have nice watches. And so if you were to open up the watch or if you have a watch that has the clear face on it, then you can see the insides, you can see the, the gear train, you can see the, the spring, you can see the balance wheel, all the inner workings of these gears, and they're all working together just to make the second hand tick 60 seconds every minute. And the minute hand go 60 times every hour, and the hour hand to go 24 times a day. That's, that's what these complex gears all mix together. They do this seemingly monotonous task of just making the, the hands go around in a circle. And yet there's, there's complexity behind it. There's a lot of working things that go into it, and really that's, that's what life is like. Right to just get up this morning and eat breakfast and come here to church. There was a lot of complexity behind that, even though it seems like a normal day thing, right? There are synapses firing in us. There's the the cells working in a certain way to just get us out of bed and get us thinking. And there's complexity behind just the normal everyday kind of life. And we see that not just in technology, not just in our life, but we see it in entities as well. We see it, we see it in the church, how God has 
puts members together to work together to create these outcomes. And seemingly uh, insignificant, maybe, sometimes, to our eyes. And yet God uses us working together, rubbing the rough edges off each other, building each other up, encouraging each other to, to make us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. All of, all of that for this outcome. And so that's especially the case in the church. We see that we can, we can zoom in, we can see the, the complexities, the individual pieces, so to speak, working together, or we could zoom out and have this big picture view of the, the clock face, so to speak. So if you were to zoom out on the church, you would see these at least a couple of main purposes that God has for the church. God says that in Ephesians 5, that he died, he gave himself, he gave up his life for the church, that she might be holy and blameless. And so he says that that's why the church exists, that it's not an accident. The church exists because Jesus died to to bring people to salvation and bring them together. And as we gather together as churches, the church does a couple of things. One, in Ephesians, it says that the church is an example of the wisdom, the plan of God, how magnificent his plan has been throughout the ages, right? From before time began, Jesus, God had this plan through Jesus to glorify himself as people were saved and gathered together. That's what Ephesians 3.10 tells us. So God has this purpose for the church. That's one big picture. Another big picture would be in 1 Timothy 3.15, where God says that the church is a pillar and foundational support of the truth. And so these big picture views of the church would be that we're gathered together to display the, the glory of God and his purpose, and we're also meant to display the truth, to proclaim the truth. And so those are the, the big hierarching views. But if you were to zoom in, and again with the metaphor, you look at the inner workings, you would see that there are all these members fitting together to accomplish these purposes. And as you zoom in a little farther, you see that God's given members and also leaders in the church, uh, two official offices in the church. One would be pastor and the other would be deacon. And so these are part of the ways that God works everything together to bring about his purposes. Pastors equip members to do this maturing through the word and deacons lead out in areas of service to help the church flourish. And so this morning, we are going to look a little more in detail at deacons. We looked at their role a few Sundays ago from Acts chapter 6. And if you miss it, you can go back and listen to it online at the website. But this morning, we're going to look at not the role, but the, the character, what a deacon is supposed to be like as a person. And we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there as we read. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. I suppose I should say as well, I gave the example of a 
watch this morning. Don't be checking your watch too much this morning. We might be slightly longer than usual, but hang in there. It's worth it. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, the word of the Lord says this. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so we read these qualifications. That's really what this passage is about. And we're going to look at them in depth in some of them this morning. As we look, we see the first one is that deacons are supposed to be dignified. There's, uh, if you think about this word, it's a, it's almost a weightiness to it. It's a seriousness. Not that you have to be serious all the time or can't have any fun, but more that people take you seriously. That's more what's behind this word. You're dignified, someone that people look up to, someone that people aren't embarrassed to imitate or associate with. Uh, As a former pastor pointed out, I remember he said, if we want to be dignified, it starts with our minds. Romans 12.1 tells us, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And so if we look around at the world, we don't have a lot of examples of what it means to be dignified, right? That's not really a character trait we would say is prevalence around us. So if we want to understand what this means, we have to think about it. We have to think about what God's word says on it. We have to meditate on it. And we see plenty of examples as a Christian in the Bible of what God calls us to. And we can not only look to his word, but we can seek out other Christians who do this. How can we follow their example and see what what they are doing so we can look at them and say, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to be dignified. And so deacons must be dignified. They shouldn't be double-tongued or slanderers. We see those qualifications in verse 8, and there's more qualifications in 11. I'm kind of grouping some of them together because they deal with the same topics. So in other words, you're supposed to have control over your tongue. That's what this passage tells us, right? This is probably a good point to say that these qualities, these characteristics aren't just something for deacons, right? We read Psalm 15 this morning. We could look at Galatians 5. All these characteristics are things that are just supposed to describe Christians. Every Christian should strive towards these qualities, but as deacons, those who lead out in service, you should be an example. You should be able to have people look at you and say, oh, that's what that looks like. So set the example in that. So deacons are not double-tongued. They have control over what they say. They don't 
say one thing to one person and another thing to another person, right? They don't say one thing behind someone's back and another thing to someone's face. They are consistent, right? They know if they're going to say something, they're willing to say it to someone as well as to other people. They don't change the story. They are consistent with their words. They you might say they speak the truth in love. If they need to say something difficult, they'll say it. If they, uh, they don't skirt the subject, they are not double tongues, thinking one thing, saying another, or saying one thing in this situation and saying another in another situation. Right? This means that sometimes we need to say hard things. Sometimes it means we need to, need to say less. Right? But we, as deacons, deacons know how to control what they say and whatever spectrum of that you're on you can grow as being seasoned with salt so that your speech you may know how to answer each one so deacons are not double tongues we see that deacons are not addicted to much wine or the character quality in verse 11 would say sober-minded right and so we can think about that for a minute and what that means. He doesn't say this is kind of important to think about as Christians. What does Paul say about drinking? Well, he doesn't say here that we should never drink. He uses the word addicted and he uses the word much. We'll see later in the book he actually tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake and his frequent infirmities. We see that he'll say in this book as well, that everything is created, everything created by God is good at the beginning of chapter 4, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And so we see that Paul is not saying you should never drink. In fact, we know Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until you're with me in my kingdom. So it's not that uh, well, we could say it this way. There's a great feast awaiting. There's a great feast when we're united with the Lord, and it will be a time of joy and gladness. So you might say the test is, am I doing this for the glory of God? That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Am I doing this, enjoying this thing as a gift from God in the way that God intended it to be enjoyed. So that's maybe one side of the coin, right? But there's more that the Bible says about this topic. Because throughout the Bible, we see, well, really not a great track record of people with alcohol. We see it misused more than it's used well. And so in the wisdom literature especially, we see that it's foolishness when people are either addicted or getting drunk, or it leads to poor decision-making, right? It's usually not described as a wise thing to do. And we can think about why that is. It has to do with this idea of being sober-minded. As a Christian, we're, we believe something. Christianity is very much rooted in our thoughts and being able to think clearly about things. And so not just with alcohol, but really with anything that has the tendency to alter our minds or thinking, whether that's marijuana or any other kind of drug, those things are not lending us to 
sober-mindedness, but are actually taking us the other direction. And so the Bible gives us these warnings that we must not be either driven by or addicted to or have our decision-making focused on this one thing, whether that's drinking or anything else, leisure, uh, what my sports team is doing, right? Anything that brings us, draws us more then we're drawn towards God. We're not really being balanced or sober-minded in that area. The same thing is true for greediness. We see greediness in this passage, the same thing. You're drawn more towards the love of money than you are towards God. All of this goes against being sober-minded. And so Paul gives us this instruction that deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. They're supposed to be sober-minded. Minded. They need to have their mental capacity sharp so that they're ready to serve when they need to. We see that deacons lead their families well. One of the qualifications here, there are really two things that are said. One is that the he's the husband of one wife. We talked about that on a Wednesday uh, about a week or two ago. So if you miss that, you can go online and read about it there. But I'll just recap it. Basically, this idea of a one-woman man, our church holds that this means that a, it's talking about a deacon is a person who's never been divorced. That would be a one-woman man. And we're going to be considering in about mm, a month or so an amendment to say that a deacon is a person who's never been divorced except in the cases permitted in the Bible in Matthew 5.32 and 1 Corinthians 7. And so if that amendment passes, that would mean the new requirements for deacons would be uh, the requirements for the exception clauses, you might say, for divorce in the Bible. Um, but that's one reason why... Uh, Business meetings or members' business meetings are important as well because we have to think through those things. But really what Paul says here is about more than being divorced, whether you've been divorced or not. What is qualifies you for a deacon is not just whether you have been married to one person your whole life, but how are you actually leading in that situation? Because it's not just about staying married, it's about the father or the husband being spiritually responsible for what's going on in the family. We see that here in the requirements. There's a reason Paul says the deacons should manage their households well because they're responsible before God for that, to build up their children, to love their wives well. The family is like an incubator for discipleship. And so that's what Paul wants to see in these people who will be leaders. He wants, to, he wants them to set that example. Not everyone will follow the Lord, but our families should set, up, set us up for following the Lord well for our whole lives. So just like pastors can't lead well if they're not leading their family, deacons can't serve well if they're not serving their family well, so we see this family, and you might sum it up with this deacons are faithful. Deacons should be faithful. We see that in this passage. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be 
faithful. Because the picture here is that someone is not carried along by opinions of someone else or by what they want or their desires. They're carried along by being faithful to what God says. You can depend on them, rely on them. There's no secret sin in their lives. They are being shaped by what God says and holding on to it. That is what faithfulness is. And really, that's really what Christianity comes down to, not just for deacons, but for each of us individually. Am I being faithful? Faithfulness is what it comes down to. If you want to measure what a good Christian is, if you want to measure whether a church is healthy and following God, then don't just think about the great acts of service that someone does. Don't just think about the number of people who show up on Sunday or the number of baptisms, but think about whether that individual or that church is being faithful in doing what they're supposed to do. Jesus said, be faithful in the little things. And so if that is our focus, we will always find a next step. We'll never, we'll never reach the end of the path until that path is leading us to heaven. There will always be a next step on this path here in life. God will always show us the next way we can be faithful to him. And that's what God calls us to. That's what God calls deacons to do. So these are the requirements we see here. It is important in this passage to take a minute, and we need to spend just a minute here looking at this idea of Verse 11, where it says, in my version, it says, their wives likewise must be, and then it gives the qualifications. There are main requirements given here and for deacons, but this is the part where there's much debate about what this means in verse 11. What does it mean that their wives likewise must be dignified, not slander, sober-minded, faithful in all things. As you read it in English, it seems pretty straightforward, but if you were to read it in the original language, there are a couple things that make us pause about it. First is this idea that the word for woman and wife is the same word in Greek. And so depending on context is really how you figure it out. It's not just this passage, but other passages, specifically 1 Corinthians has some difficult passages where you have to decide, is it talking about women or is it talking about wives? So that's one thing to consider here. And we've, uh, let me back up. This is under the general heading of should women be deacons or not? This would be the verse that people look at and say yes or no. So we should address it. It's important. It's important to be able to think through. So this is part of the thing is, is it should it be wives or should it be women? The other thing would be the word there. Your version may not have it. That's because it's not actually a Greek word that's in the text. It's supplied by the translators. There's no possessive pronoun. It just says literally likewise women or likewise wives. So it's not there, so it's not tying it back to the male deacons. The third thing about the Greek before we look at some other points is that 
this word likewise is really important structurally. So we see likewise in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Then it says in verse 11, wives or women likewise must be dignified. You'll notice those words are the same. In fact, the qualifications are the same really in verses 8 and 11, or at least the same categories. But this word likewise is really, it's talking about what? It's pointing backwards. Likewise this and likewise this. Well, it's pointing back to the beginning of the chapter where Paul has been talking about these offices in the church. He says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer or pastor, right? He's talking about a pastor. And then he says, likewise deacons. This is another office in the church. And so then he says, likewise, again, in verse 11, which makes us think that, well, maybe he's talking about another office or the same office for not deacon wives, but women deacons. So those would be some of the arguments here structurally. If you broaden out, we can look at the Bible and see that deacons don't teach, which is important because no matter which side of this debate you fall on, you would not be contradicting Paul's teaching and other passages. Right before this, he said, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's in chapter 2, the end. So here, regardless of whether women are supposed to be deacons or not, they wouldn't contradict that because teaching, this authority, is not in the role of deacon. That's made clear because pastors are supposed to be able to teach, but that requirement's not given for Deacon, so that's something in the broader context to think about. Romans 16.1 translates Phoebe as a deaconess. That's not unimportant, although that's debated as well. But it gives her the title, the, the masculine title, diakonos there. And so historically, that would be the next thing to look at. So structurally, we've looked at the text specifically. We've kind of broadened out. These would be all things that people would say in favor of women deacons. That you could say historically, and this was fascinating. I'm not sure I knew this before I started looking into it some more. But historically, this is not really a novel view to have women as deacons. It goes all the way back to the early church. We see the emperor Pliny the Younger in AD 111 describing women deacons. Clement of Alexandria in 150 wrote that Paul here was talking about women deacons. So did Origen in 180s. The Apostolic Constitutions gave guidelines for women deaconesses. John Chrysostom, who's often considered one of the greatest preachers in church history, uh, said that that's what this referred to. John Calvin said this as well. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said that the Apostle Paul uh, deaconesses was an office that most certainly was recognized by the apostolic churches. And then recently we see People like John Piper or John MacArthur uh, hold this view as well. And I list those two not because more people don't hold it, but because they kind of stand out because they've been shown time and again to be faithful to the Bible, especially on gender issues and male headship and complementarian roles. And so that stands out. So that would be some evidence for women deacons. The evidence against really comes down to well, the structure as well, arguing whether that's what the structure means. But the main argument is the flow of this passage. Why would Paul start with male deacons 
then go to female deacons, and then come back around to the family of male deacons, as it would appear he was doing, if that's how you interpreted the passage. Because he comes back in verse 12 to the families, the husband of one wife, that's clearly talking about the male. So that flow kind of maybe is clunky if it's talking about women deacons versus wives of deacons. The other argument would be from Acts chapter 6, would be the main argument. You remember we talked about that. That's really, if not deacons, maybe a prototype of deacons, the early uh, structure of what deacons were meant to be like. And there, when they selected seven men, they selected men for that position. And so that is viewed as instructive and maybe the lens through which we should interpret this. So those are the two sides. I want you to be aware of what this passage is saying. And then again, of course, no matter which side you are on or you look at the text and decide that I think this is what this says, it's important to remember we have to be gracious with those who hold other views because this in itself does not indicate whether you're a heretic or not. It doesn't indicate whether you're orthodox or not. Now, you might hold one view or the other and still be a heretic, but this view specifically, whether you view women as deacons or not, does not determine that because, again, it doesn't contradict other passages, explicit teaching we see in the Bible. I'll say currently that as a church, we hold that women should not be in the office of deacon, uh, but just like any other topic, as we uh, think about it, someone in the church could bring a motion to change that and then it'd have to be voted on. But currently we do not hold that women should be deacons. But all that to say, we need to be aware of this. And it, I would feel not right to look at this passage and not address that. But as individuals, I'll close and I'll say this, as individuals, we should be less concerned about the title we are given and more concerned about whether or not our lives are filled with this kind of Christian character and Christian service. So even if you're not called a deacon or a deaconess, we are still called to this standard. This is what we are supposed to strive for, this type of service. And if the church is filled with this kind of people, the title will matter very little because the church will be being built up by its members. These people, these deacons are to be tested and shown blameless, and then they serve as deacons. That's how our constitution and bylaws is written. You have to be a member for a year and then a member of a Southern Baptist church for two years because we want to have people been around you to get to know you before you're able to serve in this position. And really that's, that's just good for anything in life, right? It's better to be known and to know other people than to to just put people in a position and you don't know anything about their character or anything about them. Uh, whether that's teaching in Sunday school or volunteering in some other area of the church, it's good to just be here and be around people before you jump into serving. Because what matters to God is not the amount of things we do in his service. 
In other words, let me say it like this. Our value to God is not in what we do. Our value to God is that we are in a relationship with him. We are his child. And that value does not change. And so it is good to be here, to be around people. Our value to the church is not about how much we are able to do in service to the church, although our service is much needed. I mean, we're a small church. We cannot have things unless many people, percentage-wise, of our church serve. But our value to the church is not wrapped up in what we do. We would still be valuable if we were not serving because we are a part of this body. Now we're called to serve as well, but that's not where our value is tied up in, so to speak. And that's an important distinction. So as we conclude, as we kind of zoom back out, we've zoomed in really far into the members, into the inner workings of what a deacon's supposed to be like, their character. But as we kind of zoom back out, we can think about once more, the big picture, the, the big mission of Jesus. We see in John 17 that Jesus prayed for the glory of God, that that was his focus. Father, glorify yourself. That was his prayer as he came, as he died to show the justice and mercy of God, that God is able to perfectly judge and must punish sin, but he's able to be merciful and forgive us our sins. All that is possible because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And God is not only glorified when we're forgiven and made a part of his family, but he's also glorified as our lives reflect him more. In other words, he's not just glorified as we're justified, but he's glorified as we are sanctified. And that's really what this passage is about. As we look at these character qualities, we see that deacons, as they exemplify these characteristics, as they serve, they can lead the church to this building up, this edification, this sanctification. That's one important role of these high character deacons. And so God wants people to lead like this in the church, whether you have the title or not. It's good for the church. It's good for the person as a deacon. And it's, it's one piece in that clockwork that God has put together for his glory. So as we have a time of response, I want us this morning to think about how can we show this kind of character more in our lives? Uh, maybe pick out one of these character qualities and think, thank you, God, that you have been working on me in that area. Continue to work on me in this as more and more. Maybe you can thank God that you've seen this exampled by someone else. But let's respond to the Lord this morning as we feel led by the Spirit as we continue.